I, I ran across a fascinating article by a couple of researchers, Elizabeth Dunn and Michael Norton, and they asked this provocative question. They say, imagine that you woke up tomorrow morning to discover a million dollars under your mattress. Leaving aside the obvious lumpiness issue, they say, take a moment to think, what would you do with that cash? They write, if you're like many people, contemplating your newfound wealth would probably make you think about one thing above all else, yourself. A growing body of research shows that the mere whiff of money draws out our selfish sides, focusing us on what that money can do for us and us alone. Perhaps you imagined buying a raft of new possessions, they say, faster car, high-end gas grill with rear rotisserie, or even a new house with a fancy rain shower in your commodious bathroom. Says they, they didn't experiment. They told some people to head to Starbucks and buy something for themselves. They gave them a, a gift card to do that. They told others to pass their gift card along to someone else. They told a third group to use the gift card to buy something for someone else with the additional requirement they actually hang out with that person at Starbucks. Who was the happiest, they say? Those who treated someone else and then shared in that experience with them. They say, so the cost of increasing your happiness may be as cheap as two cups of coffee. Add this study to that. There's a study they did of 132 patients with, uh, with MS, with multiple sclerosis. And researchers formed two groups, <clears throat> one of people who met weekly to learn coping skills and another of people who met monthly and received support from another person with multiple sclerosis. The goal was to see which group fared better, those learning coping skills or those hearing from another MS sufferer. But the surprise finding was that neither group fared as well as did the MS sufferers who had been trained to offer support. The study found that <clears throat> giving support improved health more than receiving it. Those MS sufferers felt a dramatic change in how they viewed themselves in life. Depression, self-confidence, self-esteem improved markedly. The main researcher said these people had undergone a spiritual transformation that gave them a refreshed view of who they were. Caring for others brought healing for the caregivers. So what's going on here? What's, what is underlying these kinds of studies? And there are a, a number of them. seems counterintuitive, especially if you think about finding a million dollars under your mattress. It seems hard to imagine that our greatest joy comes in giving it to someone else rather than spending it on ourselves. What's going on here? And I would liken it to something called Bitcoin. Are you guys familiar with Bitcoin? I don't understand Bitcoin. Okay? Bitcoin is digital currency created in 2009 by some guy that nobody knows even who he is. Okay. He wrote about it. His name is uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, supposedly. They don't even know who the guy is. But Bitcoin offers the promise of lower transaction fees than traditional online payment mechanisms. It's oper operated by no government. There's no government backing Bitcoin. It's just digital currency. You don't even, you even carry it in your pockets. Okay. It's just digital. It's, it's some other form of economy, right? 
And I'm going to say something like that is going on behind these studies that they're picking up on. There's a whole nother economy that's operating out there at work. There's a whole nother value system that's operating kind of off the radar that, that's counterintuitive. And, and the Bible's full of these kind of um, alternative value systems. Things like, bless those who curse you. Somebody takes your coat, give them your shirt. Someone takes your stuff, don't demand it back. Turn the other cheek if someone strikes you. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. It's all very counterintuitive. It's not what we naturally do if we're left to our own devices, right? It's like another economy of values that's functioning out there. Today, today we're going to think about one of those tenets that's part of that alternative economy of the spiritual world in which God calls us to. It's found in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, and you've heard of it. It's part of our lore. It says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, this, 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 is divide, this divides us in our hearts. At one point, some of us, part of us says, yes. And part of us says, really? So the million bucks, I would have more joy if I gave it away? Really? Um, now, now it's not, this is not the totality of what the Bible says about money or that you're supposed to do with your money. Proverbs talks about saving up for hard times. Noah read a passage last week that talked about enjoying the good things God gave to us. But of all the exhortations concerning our money in the Bible, the idea that to give is more blessed than to receive is probably one of the ones that we most need to hear for folks who live where we live when we live. Um, I am convinced that we leave far too much of this generosity blessing, this generosity joy laying on the table far too often. We, we get little glimpses of this once in a while. You ever sit with a friend in a restaurant and you fight over who gets to pay the check, right? That's a glimpse. That's an indicator that there's something going on here that's real and tangible and true and there's a greater joy. Today, we have a very simple, single objective, and that is to live a little bit more like we believe Jesus' teaching on this matter, that we really believe that what Jesus says here is true. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And so the obvious heart question today is, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. And uh, let me pray for our, our time together. Father, have mercy on us now. Bring your word to us in ways that gives us great joy and brings you great honor. Bring, bring this, this truth to us in a way that the faith you give us will help us believe it and embrace it and obey it. So help us, Jesus, by your spirit and your word now, we pray. Amen. Okay, now if you noticed, you are reading 
the words of Jesus, not from one of his biographies in the four Gospels. You're reading the words of Jesus from the book of Acts, um, which is uh, very unusual. Um, the apostle Paul here is actually quoting Jesus. Um, he's, Paul, in this point in the book of Acts, if you remember from our study of the book of Acts, he's, he's on his third and last, really, one, uh, close to his last uh, missionary journey when he arrives in the city of Ephesus. Uh, while there, um, God did many miracles of healing and exorcism through Paul. Paul's success in reaching people in the city of Ephesus um, was so great that the silversmiths in that great city of Ephesus who made silver shrines for their goddess Artemis feared that, feared that their business would dry up. So many people were becoming followers of Jesus and not worshiping their idols. Um, that they, they stirred up a riot. And Paul had to leave town fearing for his life after living there and starting a church and being their pastor for three years. Okay. Paul loved the church in Ephesus. Um, he, he had invested a large portion of his life there. And as he continues on his journey and comes back by this time, he, he doesn't have time. He's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem when our, when our verse takes place. He doesn't have time to stop in to Ephesus at this point in time, but he cannot bear not to see the leaders that he's poured his life in for these three years. And so he calls the elders of the church in Ephesus to come to him, and the message that he gives them is what we're eavesdropping on this morning. These are Paul's last words to the church leaders that he loves in the city of Ephesus. And he tells them a variety of things. He tells them, he encourages them to be humble and to be faithful, and then he encourages them to be watchful. And this is where we want to slow down and drop into his conversation, what he's sharing with these leaders for the very last time. In Acts chapter 20, verse 29, Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, be on your guard, be watchful. So Paul says false prophets are coming, right? It's almost, it's almost just like a saying today, so-and-so is a false prophet. That means they said something that didn't come true. Paul's day, these were literally false teachers, false prophets twisting the truth of God, um, and they were coming to the church in Ephesus. A little, a little bit later, Paul's going to write a letter to his mentee, Timothy, and in it, he's going to give a fuller description of these false teachers. In all likelihood, or one of the likely locations Timothy was when he received this letter was in Ephesus, and so Paul's describing these false teachers. In 1 Timothy 6, he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. One of the key things to keep in mind about the false teachers that Paul's concerned about is that last phrase there. They imagined that godliness was a means of financial gain. They were in it for the money. Okay. 
Okay, keep that in mind. We're going to go back to Acts 20, where Paul now turns from encouraging these leaders how they're supposed to care for the church. Now he talks about who's going to care for these leaders since he's leaving. He says, so I commend you to God, you leaders, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So we trust them to God and the word or the message of grace. That is that we are not made right with God by our works. It's not because we deserve it. It's not because we earn it. Paul is reminding them, commending them to a message that they are not able to be good enough to to find their way to God on their own, but they have to lean on the grace that comes from Christ. It's not something they earned, not something they merited. It's grace. It's an undeserved favor that comes from God through Jesus. Paul believes that if they draw near to God, they cling to this message that it's going to safeguard these leaders. He's committing them to this. And they're going to be built up, and they're they're going to have a sure inheritance. And this inheritance, it's variously described in Paul's writings, but it's a future thing. And probably could be best summarized in the word that they're going to inherit a kingdom. Okay? They're going to inherit an amazing kingdom. And the descriptions of it are absolutely unbelievable almost in the New Testament. But it's all that's good and wonderful in God's presence, especially God. The great thing about the kingdom is you get the king. Okay? You get to be with your good and mighty heavenly father, your maker, your redeemer, the one who loves you no matter what. And this idea of an inheritance is pivotal in Paul's thinking here as he's talking to them. And and I'll come back to that in in a little bit. But after saying this, after he commits them to God and his message of grace, he now cites his own example, which is a contrast to those false teachers who were in it for the money, right? Paul then says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands of mine, right, his hands, ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. So Paul puts forth his life now as a contrary example to those false teachers. He wasn't in it for the money. No coveting. He didn't even covet apparel which would shut down entire industries in our culture, right? Coveting, our, our economy largely runs on coveting. It's, uh, it's almost a virtue to covet. Uh, Brandon O'Brien writes about the notion that the first will be last doesn't seem to bother some folks He says, when Apple's revolutionary iPhone hit the market in late June of 2007, it sold for $599. Three weeks, uh, excuse me, 10 weeks later, the price went down to $399. Some of you vividly remember that, okay? A 33% price reduction in 10 weeks. 
Many who bought the iPhone at the original price were outraged, but others would have paid any price to be among the first to own the new technology. One customer explained it this way, if they told me at the outset the iPhone would be $200 cheaper the next day, I would have thought about it for a second and still bought it. The next day, okay, early adopters, we call them. Early adopters, consumers who purchase new technology as soon as it becomes available, relish the prestige of taking home a new toy before anyone else. Despite the fact that electronics often become more reliable in the second and third generations and retail prices for technology always decrease with time, early adopters are undeterred by the risks, he says. The pleasure of owning a rare product far outweighs the financial sacrifice. In the words of one satisfied iPhone owner, even if it only works one day, it's worth it. All right? So for many, he says, it's not the technology itself, but the distinction of ownership that's attractive. One iPhone owner admitted to buying a Nintendo Wii game system for $150 above the retail price once he realized how scarce the systems were. He wasn't even interested in playing it. He just wanted to own it. O'Brien says that such is a life in a land of plenty that still wants more and wants it first. We want our neighbors looking over the fence at our gizmos and gadgets. We want someone else to experience the sting of envy. We're no longer satisfied with keeping up with the Joneses. We want to be the Joneses, he says. And so Paul says, I am free from covetousness. I am free from this foolishness. How can that be? How can we be free from coveting. At some level, I'm sure it's a choice, right? But there's more operating in what Paul's sharing here than just willpower. Again, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. So Paul worked hard with his own hands. He was a tent maker to provide for his own needs, but also the needs of his companions. Okay? Paul was working to provide for his, his teammates. And he showed, he says, by my example, that we must work hard to provide for the weak. Okay? This is why Paul's working so hard. Not for personal comfort or prestige, but for others, specifically the weak. It's often a reference to those who are sick. And our culture has it wrong in this regard. We work hard so we can get a faster car, or a man cave, or a remodel, or an exotic vacation, or whatever comfort or pleasure we have a hankering for. And I suppose if there was ever a poster boy for this, it was a guy named Sam Polk. Uh, by the time he was 30 years old, Sam Polk had made more than $5 million in bonuses alone during the eight years prior working on Wall Street. Okay. So for, in his 20s, he made $5 million just in bonuses. As a trader, he was living it up in Manhattan by the age of 25. Polk says, it was an easy thing to go to a World Series game. 
for which a lot of people was like a dream. I had a tremendous feeling of importance and power, especially as a 25-year-old kid. But at the age of 30, he abruptly quit his job on Wall Street and walked away. Despite the money, he was still consumed by envy. He went on to work at a hedge fund, and his obsession with money only got worse. And he wrote in a New York Times op-ed, he said, now working elbow to elbow with billionaires, he says, I was a giant fireball of greed. That's his self-description. I was a giant fireball of greed. I'd think about how my colleagues could buy Micronesia if they wanted to or become the mayor of New York City. They didn't just have money. They had power. Senators came to their offices. They were royalty. Polk describes getting angry over a $3.6 million bonus because it wasn't big enough. He realized that what he had he now calls a wealth addiction. He says, I came to realize I had been using money as this thing that would quell all my fears. So I had this belief that maybe someday I would get enough money that I would no longer be scared. I would feel successful. And one of the things I learned on Wall Street was that no matter how much money I made, the money was never going to do it. See, Paul is setting us a contrary example here. He is working One for his own needs, which is very, very legitimate to work to provide the basic needs for you and your family. But then he says, I'm working for the needs of my companions too. Especially, I'm working hard for the weak, for those in need. And Paul would later write instructions to this same church. Uh, In the book of Ephesians, he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is why we work, for those who are in need, so that we can share with them. So a beautiful example of this in the last several weeks. Uh, If you want to make note, Allison Singwald, who is a member of North Wake, Uh, she's flying today to Wisconsin. Tomorrow she has brain surgery, Chiari brain surgery, a very, very serious uh, operation that's going to hopefully take care of a plethora of health issues that she has. So if you'd be praying tomorrow morning for Allison, that would be outstanding. But she's not going to be able to work for several months. So even though insurance covered virtually all of her medical expenses, she had a significant amount of just life expenses she's not going to be able to meet over the next several months. So she started a GoFundMe page and spread it around the church, and I checked yesterday, and she had uh, $100 more than she'd asked for, $100 more than she needed, and a bunch of you were in on that. Um, That's exactly what Paul has in mind, exactly what he has in mind. We work hard so that we can meet the needs of those in need. Um, Jenny Alford prayed a beautiful prayer. She says, I do not thank thee, Lord that I have bread to eat while others starve, nor yet for work to do while empty hands solicit heaven, nor for a body strong while other bodies flatten beds of pain. No, not for these do I give thanks, but I'm grateful, Lord, because my meager loaf I may divide, for that my busy hands may move to meet another's need, because my doubled strength I may extend, expend to steady one who faints. Yes, for all these do I give thanks, for heart to share, desire to bear, and will to live. Thanks be to God. 
And so last week, Noah really challenged us, gave us a strong challenge. So if you work really hard this year and you get a year-end bonus, what are you going to do with that? If come tax time, you get a return, what are you going to do with that? You get a promotion and your wages jump. What are you going to do with that? An inheritance comes your way. How are you going to use that? Do you believe what Jesus said? It's more blessed to give than to receive. How does that work? How is it more blessed to give than to receive? Again, it's, it's not either or. It's not that you can't spend some on your needs and enjoy things. But, but wouldn't it be silly to hear what Jesus says and keep primarily doing the opposite? That'd be silly. When Jesus promises you that it's more blessed, that there's more joy, more happiness, you sense the Father's pleasure on your life more if you give than even when you receive. And there's joy in receiving. It's, it's good to receive. It's, it's joyful to receive. There's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus says there's more joy. There's more blessing. You sense the Father's pleasure more when you're the giver. What do they say is the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. We keep keeping more and more and buying more and more and thinking it will make us happy. Let me let you just listen to a small sampling of the voices from the pages of the Bible that affirm what Jesus is saying in this simple expression, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Psalm 112, it is well with the man who deals generously and lends. Proverbs 11, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. The very next verse, whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Luke 6, give, give, Jesus says, and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. 2 Corinthians, God loves a cheerful giver. Hebrews 13, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Proverbs 19, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. 2 Corinthians 9 again, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Luke 14, Jesus tells a story. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. It is more blessed 
to give than to receive. The scriptures are a drip with this. It's everywhere. Everywhere it's leaking out of the pages of the Bible. And so this is why from the beginning, we have made a commitment amongst our leaders that every year, the money that comes in through our Journey of Faith capital campaign, we give 10% of it away. Okay? We, we give it away. It is a tangible reminder that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so we have given to First Choice Pregnancy Center. We've given to the Lottie Moon uh, Christmas offering that Andy was talking about that pays missionary salaries. We've given to the Onesimus Children Development Association and, and Orphanage in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. We've given to local church, African-American church plants who are preaching the gospel faithfully in the Raleigh area. We've given to help with a tragic earthquake in Pakistan. We've supported a ministry in Kazakhstan that reaches out to drug addicts and prostitutes in the name of Jesus. We've helped train pastors in Haiti and the Dominican Republic through Haiti Love. Um, We've funded North Wake missionary projects. We've helped fund our five new North Wake church plants. We've last year built handicapped accessible restrooms in building two, so that building's now accessible um, to wheelchair users. See, this is one way that we affirm it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so this year, our journey of faith tithe, that 10% is going to go to help Uptown Church in Martinsville, Virginia. It'll provide funding, critical funding for them as they start their church this year. Um, Just began uh, a series of Bible studies and meetings up there in Martinsville. And God's doing really cool work. If you're not on their mailing list, contact the office. We'll put you on it. God's at work up there. We want to bless them. We want to encourage them. We're also going to, to give a piece of that, of that money to uh, Ben and Lindsay uh, Neisser's um, ministry in uh, Salt Lake City. Uh, they're reaching out to Mormon students on Brigham Young University and seeing God do some really neat stuff. Really, really great Bible studies with Mormon students helping them discover who the true Jesus is and what work he has done on our behalf. So we're going to fuel those ministries um, just as a way of reminding ourselves it's more blessed to give than to receive. That'll happen this year. Let's go back to Paul. In between him talking, warning them about these false teachers who he elsewhere describes as greedy and his own example of not coveting and working for the sake of others, there's this one verse that's kind of a pivot in between. He says, I commend you to God. And to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. And the link thematically in terms of money and resources is that word inheritance. See, as we come to know God by his grace, and we trust that he has an inheritance for us that's far beyond anything we could even desire or imagine then that frees us from covetousness now. The inheritance is a key part of that. Then as he goes on to our verse we're talking about this morning, where we remember the words of Jesus who said it's more blessed to give than to receive, that promise is key. That promise is really part of the inheritance. It's the promise of the inheritance. The assurance of the pleasure of pleasing God is yours. Now, 
If you don't know God in the way that I'm talking about him this morning, where you are confident that you are his child and that you're going to receive this amazing inheritance of life with the king one day, then you need to know that everything we're talking about this morning is really secondary for you and we really don't want your money. We really don't care about about you giving our church any money. Um, That is so secondary to what, what matters most to you is that you would consider receiving the gift that God offers to you. The gift of forgiveness and life in the Son. We would rather you know and believe that there's a God who loves you such that he would send his only Son to bear the penalty for your sins and screw-ups and wrong choices on the cross so that you could be adopted into God's family as children with this amazing inheritance waiting for you. That's what matters most. Okay. Now, again, these are Paul's last words. Okay. Just before he speaks them, he says, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. He goes on to say, except that suffering and hardship awaits me. Okay. He knows this is the last time he's going to see these leaders that he loves. And the very last recorded words we have that he spoke to those leaders for the very last time were these words. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You know, last words carry weight. Um, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem to be imprisoned there. He knows that, to suffer there. And these, were, these are the words he chooses to speak to them. Many of you were here last week. Jeff Doyle shared his parting words with us as a pastor. He's moving to Lexington. He's not going to jail in Lexington. He's just moved to Lexington <laughs> to serve God there. Okay? And so, you know, Jeff's last words to us were powerful words, and they were carefully chosen. In the second service, I still remember one of his very last words he spoke were, fight the good fight. And if Paul had not said that, Jeff Doyle would have. That's a Doyleism. And I remember that. You remember that. Last words matter. These are the last words that Paul chooses to leave ringing in their minds. That's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, these words are spoken to leaders. They're for the whole church, and it's expected to trickle down through these leaders, their lives into the church. And the cool thing about North Wake is we have the, some of the best, I think some of the best leaders on earth. I'm so deeply thankful for our leaders. And every year we renew these commitments to our Journey of Faith Capital campaign and they lead. And so this year, a little band of uh, like 30 some of our leaders turned in their Journey of Faith commitments ahead of time. They make up about 10% of our church, of our church family, and they've committed to give already a quarter of what our annual commitments were for the entire year last year. Just this little group. They want to lead by example. They're amazing. Now, they're amazing, but they're not perfect. So, um, let, me, let me say a word to those of you who are leaders and you were challenged to lead in this. Only about half of you responded. Okay? Um, Paul is talking here to leaders. He is talking to you and to me, 
And he is saying, look, I showed you how to live so that you could pass it on to the church. Don't miss the opportunity to pass this on to the church. The journey of faith is for us, somebody says, like training wheels, right? It's teaching us how to ride generously. And uh, I've, had, I've had these training wheels on now for like 14 years, and I can tell you I am so much more generous now than I was when we started this. It, it's helping me. So this year I get out, I'm ready to make my pledge, right, for the next year, and I get it out and I look at it, and I realize that it's more than I remembered us giving. Not a little more. It's a lot more than I remembered. I don't know what I was thinking last year. It's a third more than I thought we were giving. That's a lot for us. And so I'm looking at it and, and I'm thinking, what, am I, what, hap- what was I thinking last year? And now what am I going to do this year? And so what I decided to do, Steph and I decided to do was Give more still, okay? We're going to give more this year than whatever I was thinking last year, okay? Because we believe and we want to obey what Jesus says here, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so I'm challenging you as leaders, you've got to model this, okay? You can't sit this out. The church suffers when you don't lead in this matter. That Paul chose to be his closing words to the church there. Because they suffered the same culture we suffered. And I can challenge you like this because I I believe what Paul said in Philippians is true. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your account. You will be more blessed if you will give than if you just receive. So the rest of you leaders, if you'll get your commitment to me tomorrow, I'll send out a revised number to the church and let them know how much you're willing to lead. In fact, if you just are itching to lead in this area, even if I didn't invite you to, send it in tomorrow and I'll let the church know this week where we are, that people are eager to demonstrate this generosity ahead of time. Now, next Sunday, our church congregation as a whole are going to make pledges for the coming year to help pay off our building debt. We are within three to four years of being debt-free as a church, okay? And I can only imagine the kind of things we did with the tithe, what we can do when we are debt-free. Now, last year, only two-thirds of our church joined in this. And I, I know some of you are thinking, I got nothing I'm a student. We're PBJ in it. I got nothing. And uh, let me just close with a story just to encourage you about a guy. I love this guy's story. His name is Albert Lexi. And Albert Lexi is a shoeshine man. He has an eighth grade education. And when he was finished eighth grade in shop class, he built a shoeshine cart. And he became a shoeshine man. And uh, for the last 30 years, Albert has set up shop in Pittsburgh's Children's Hospital and knocked the dirt off other people's shoes. He buffs, he polishes, and he charges just $5 for his labor. Often a satisfied customer leaves a tip for Albert. Most give an extra dollar. Some give two. Once during the Christmas season, a doctor gave him $50 for shining one pair of shoes. 
Um, but big tips are, are few and far between for Albert, and people don't just care about the condition of their shoes like they used to. Albert is kind of like a relic left over from another era, maybe even a different world. Um, when Albert shined his last shoe and put away his shoe shine kit for good, he's not going to be forgotten at Pittsburgh's Children's Hospital because Albert's going to leave behind a legacy. Since the day he shined his first pair of shoes there 30 years ago, Albert has donated more than a third of his earnings to the Children's Hospital Free Care Fund, which helps parents who can't afford to buy for their sick children's medical costs. In addition, Albert has given the hospital every tip he has ever received. Every single tip. And of course, Albert's just a shoeshine man, so you wouldn't think it would add up to much. But according to the hospital administration, Albert has given just over $200,000. $200,000. It's a seemingly impossible number. Two hundred grand is what professional athletes give, right? Not shoeshine men. And yet that's the number. Even small amounts, the article says, given faithfully, add up to a powerful legacy. See, there's a whole other economy out there that's hidden in our culture. And it operates on this principle, Jesus' principle. It is more blessed to give than to receive. I think Albert believed that. Do you believe that? And if you do, what does God want you to do about it? Would you pray with me, please?